Good morning and welcome again to Morning Devotions. Thank you so much for our time together. Every morning, we're going to sit down and get a face full of Jesus. That's a statement I like. We want a face full of Jesus. With all this panic, with all this pandemonium, with all this fear that is gripping our society and our world, my brothers and sisters, God has promised he would never fail us. He would never forsake us. He would never leave us. Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. My friend, we have great and precious promises, but no promises greater than his presence. Now, I want to talk to you for just a second before we get started, because every morning we have devotions together. Every evening, Sister Bev and I sit down and we have a little service together with you. My purpose is to keep you focused on Jesus. Panic is a distraction. It always has been. It always will be. Now, there's a spiritual element to these, these plagues. Remember Psalms 91, these plagues stalk in the darkness. I want to take you back with me to, to things with we've studied from the land of Israel. Do you remember Caesarea Philippi, the gates of hell? A little nowhere place that people would flock to, to offer their babies. They'd throw their babies into the gates of hell to appease the god Pan, it's where we get the word panic and pandemonium from. Now, this demon god brought panic to people's lives. You'd throw a baby in. If the water came out red, the baby was not accepted. You had to throw another baby in. I mean, this demons always take. Demons are full of greed. They always take and never give. And as Jesus walked through that area, after all the miracles he had done, he was shocked to see how people just walked right by him and ignored him and went to Pan. He said, well, Pastor, why would they do that? Because he brought panic. Fear is very, very controlling. God is a God of love. God doesn't control anybody by fear. He looks at his disciples and he says, you know what, who do men say that I am? How, how can they so easily ignore me? How can they so easily walk by me? I'm the son that God is giving for the world. And instead, they offer their babies up to Pan. Now, brothers and sisters, you don't need to offer anything up to panic. You, you don't need to give attention to panic. You need to get your attention on Jesus. He is your savior. He is your deliverer. It is he who is the rock, as we taught last night, the foundation of our lives. All right, now that's just a little thought to think about today. Psalms chapter 91, as we get started, we'll read it every morning. And really, a couple of times a day with your children, you should sit down and read it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my, the, the confession of faith that fills my heart, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Didn't say he might. It said he will deliver you. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. I love that. I saw on Facebook early this morning, Brother Arrow says, made a graphic artist design. He's a graphic artist by trade. He made a beautiful design about his faithfulness as a shield. He made a beautiful shield and put his faithfulness on it. That's a, a great picture to have in your mind. Here comes the coronavirus. His faithfulness is your shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side. We may see a lot of people die. 10,000 at your right hand but it will not come near you. What is happening around you should not cause panic in your life. It will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. Ah, in him we live and move and have our being. That's what Paul said. Jesus said, you know, when we dwell in him, he dwells in us. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. I like that. Shall be allowed. God won't allow it. No plague come near your tent, your home. Your home is a place of safety. 
for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adler, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Now, there's a, there's a great truth. Because you know his name. His name is his nature, his character. Every night this week, I'm going to be teaching you about what a wonderful God I'm going to talk to you about the character of God every night. That's going to be the purpose of all my sermons for maybe, oh, maybe two weeks if we're stuck in the house. I'm just going to teach you about the character of God. Because you know his name, you know his character, you know his nature, God said, I will protect you. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Ah. Open up your hearts. And now listen, when we praise and worship in the morning, if you just sit there, worship is not a spectator sport. Basketball is a spectator sport. We stand there and we watch. Or we sit there and we watch. Worship is not something that we watch. Worship entertainment is something that we watch. Worship is something that we do. We participate. So stand with me and let's worship God together.
Father, we come to you today. We lift to you, President Duterte, all the cabinet officials, all of the government officials that are working so tirelessly right now. Father, you hold the king's heart in your hand and direct it like a watercourse. Father, President Duterte doesn't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do. This is something unique in our generation. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would just take his heart in your hand strengthen his body, strengthen his lungs to take the pressure of all that he is going through. Strengthen the bodies of all the cabinet officials, Lord, and all of the military people that are working so hard. Let their bodies be strong. And Father, guide them, lead them. You know the path to walk through this situation. Father, lead them and guide them to bring our nation through this. We thank you for it, Father. Lord, we lift you all of our people today. Let your hand rest upon them. Let all of your good promises just fill their hearts and fill their mouths as the abundance flows out of their hearts. Father, I thank you that this pestilence shall stay far from the homes of every one of our families, every believer across this nation. Let this be a time of distinction, Father, that people see in this time of distinction those who follow you and those who do not follow you. Let them see the reality of the people of God and your hand upon our lives. Father, let yourself be glorified in the middle of all of this work of Satan. Let yourself be glorified. Let this be a time of distinction in which people see your hand upon the lives of your people and your promises fulfilled in the lives of your people. Let this even be a great precursor to revival, Father, where people's hearts will begin to see the reality of God, that you're not just a story, you're not just a fairy tale, you're real and you intervene in the affairs of this life. Bring glory to yourself, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Ah.
God is good. Oh, God is good and his mercy endures forever. Oh, God, I got to get myself together here. All right, we're going to pick up reading today in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Luke 5, beginning with verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Now, please forgive me. I've been in meetings like this. Every critic shows up at once. Now, you have to understand the stage is set. With these verses, Luke shows us who is sitting there, and that allows us to understand what begins to transpire next. We see this incredible situation where the critics of Jesus from Judea and Galilee and from Jerusalem, they've all come down together at one time. It's like, let's have an inspect Jesus convention. <laughs> and that's just what they're doing. They have all come together to inspect Jesus. So on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present with him to heal, not with them, with him. There is a huge difference in that concept. The power of the Lord was present with him to heal, but nobody was getting healed. Uh, now, I want you just to look at that. When you have a group of people who are there to find fault, when you have a group of people who are not there to receive, when you have a group of people who are just in a place to inspect, nothing's happening. See, they're coming to inspect. They're not coming to receive. The power of the Lord was present to heal, but there's no miracles happening. Now, sometimes you have to understand the audience changes the atmosphere. These people, these Pharisees and teachers who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, to check Jesus out. They were not there to receive. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal, but nothing was happening. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. That's fascinating. They, a person who wanted to receive couldn't get in because the place was full of inspectors. <laughs> I just... I find that so amusing. Please forgive me. I've been in services like this. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So here's a group of men. They were determined to receive, so they were determined to get their friend in front of Jesus. Now, so you've got the room filled with the inspectors and you got one guy, one group of people who want to receive, can't get in, but they won't be denied. I like these guys. And when he saw their faith, now notice, he didn't see the faith of the sick, paralyzed man. We saw the faith of the four friends. When he saw men who were not going to allow the atmosphere of inspection, the intimidation of these Pharisees and teachers of the law who'd come from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. When he saw the faith of these people that would not be denied in the face of the inspectors, <laughs> he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, whoa, now wait a minute now. We didn't see anything like this until this guy got here. Maybe this is a plant, you know, who knows? They began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who is this? What do you mean, who is this? They have a question of identity. Who is this? Who does he think he is? We are the teachers of the law. We are the Pharisees. We are the righteous ones. <laughs> it's amazing. When people are full of themselves, they can't see who Jesus is. Ah, now there's a truth for you. When people are full of themselves, they can't see who Jesus is. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who could forgive sins but God alone when Jesus perceived their thoughts? Now, yes, Jesus knew the thoughts of all men, but forgive me. I've sat in rooms like this. When you see the faces of these people and you watch the whispering, you know what's going on. 
When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, he said, All right, you said, Who am I? Let me show you who I am. But that you may know, he said, You're all here to check me out. You're, you're all here to inspect me. All right, let's get this inspection over with. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, remember, the healing power was with Jesus. The power of the Lord was with him. He didn't ask these other guys to join him in prayer. There was no faith in their hearts. There was no power to heal in their lives. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem, in front of the inspection team before them. He immediately rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. But now notice, they, they didn't say, this is the son of God. They didn't say this is the son of man. They still wouldn't change their mind on the identity of Jesus. They were just amazed. Now, please understand, God put on a show that day. God validated Jesus that day in front of the inspectors. But that miracle did not change their attitudes. You see, in just a few minutes, their attitudes are still very critical. They're Amazement. People can sit there and watch miracles. I've, I've sat in services with people and I've been astounded by the miracles. And my heart was just tears coming down my face. Just look at what Jesus is doing. And after the service, somebody walks up and says, wow, that was really amazing. And I say, yeah, God is good. Well, I'm not sure I really believe in all this, but that was amazing. And I'm going, God will validate who he is. God will, will show and, and, and in his mercy reveal the, the, the reality of who Jesus is. But you know what? It's up to you for that to change your heart. After this, so right after this inspection, Jesus being validated, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, that is a passage that is just full. First of all, pastors, everybody talks about where's the next generation of ministry. I would say, pastors, do we have eyes to see? He saw a man who would be a future apostle. He saw. Same thing with Peter. We read it to you yesterday. He saw. You have to have eyes to see. Sometimes as pastors, we're, we're so busy doing all the work, we need to just stop and have eyes to see. And I want you to notice, Jesus never chose an apostle from the synagogue. He, he never chose someone to say, come and follow me out of a synagogue or out of a religious gathering. They were all called out of everyday life. Jesus was out among people in everyday life. Pastors, sometimes you got to get out of your offices and get out of your ivory towers and walk out into everyday life. That's where you see the reality of people's hearts. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. In other words, he's, he's taking in his money. Now, you got to remember, a tax collector in Jesus' day was the most corrupt collaborator that there was. This was a Jew who was a Roman collaborator. He collaborated with the occupying army and he collected their money. Probably the most hated guy in the city, all right? A tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, whoa. Now here's a man, not like Peter, who's leaving his business. Not like Andrew, and his brother who are leaving their, their family business and leaving their boat with their father. Here's a man who is leaving his corruption to become an apostle of God. 
Now, again, I meet people today who I don't doubt their call. I doubt their obedience. Jesus did call them to the ministry, but they won't leave the corrupt business that they're involved in. They still want to maintain their corruption and be a leader. It doesn't work like that. Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. So if you're listening to me today, please forgive me. I I don't question your call. I don't question that God spoke to you. I question your obedience. If you're not willing to leave everything, please don't tell me that you're a preacher. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples. Now, let's just back up. I've listened to people say, this is engaging the culture. Jesus went into the sinful place and engaged the culture. Excuse me, no. This is sinful culture engaging Jesus. This is a banquet that has been put together by Levi in honor of Jesus. Jesus is the honored guest. Levi has brought all of his tax collector friends, all of his corrupt friends, to hear Jesus. Jesus was not there to make friends with these people. Jesus had been brought there to minister to these people. So when we talk about engaging the culture, we're not talking about Jesus hanging out with sinful environments. We're talking about Jesus is brought into a place as an honored guest, and a group of sinful people are brought to Jesus, and Jesus ministers to them. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples. Notice they didn't grumble at Jesus. They grumbled at his disciples. Now, now this is one of the things I try to be careful of as a leader. There are people that will not say things to me, but they will chew out some of the pastors on staff. They don't have the courage to say it to me, but they'll say it to the pastors on staff because sometimes the assistants don't have the answers that are necessary and people think they can get away with their attitudes. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you, now notice not why does Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice Jesus didn't require his apostles stand up for themselves. Jesus answered them. Jesus didn't make the assistants answer. Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he tells you his purpose of the meeting. The purpose of his meeting was not there for friendship, not there for entertainment, not there for enjoyment. He he was not engaging the culture to be a part of the culture. He said, I'm engaging the culture here to bring sinners to repentance. My purpose of being here is to bring these people to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Okay, so again, they're now continuing to attack the assistance of Jesus, their spirituality. First they attack the lifestyle of Jesus' followers. Now they attack their lifestyle. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No, it's, it's party time. It, it's celebration time. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days, the, the days that we're living in now, and Jesus is apart from us in one sense. These are the days that we fast. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst with skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, I've heard these verses so misused in my life. And you know what? I don't have great clear revelation on all that it means. But what Jesus is trying to tell people is you can't keep doing things the same way. Now, a new wineskin will never change definitions. A new wineskin will never change uh, truth. Okay, a new wineskin just says, this is truth, and this is how we apply truth, but it doesn't change the definition, and it doesn't change the truth. When, when you try to, to take 
old truth and try to match it, 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 it won't match. Now, what I mean by old truth, I'm not talking about truth doesn't become truth, but there are things that we have to understand that are different in our generation and it doesn't, doesn't match. But now that last part, and there's so much in there, I, I wish I had about three hours to teach just this last little piece. But what about the old wine and new wine? He said, all right, you have to put new wine and new wine skins. He said, what people really desire is the old wine skins. Now that really, the old wine, so that really messes up some people's interpretation of this passage. If the old is so bad, why do people desire the old? Because the old is good. Ah, maybe we need to learn to ask for the ancient paths. Now you begin to see the little bit of Mogulo in my brain that's taking place with this. Now, the old wine here doesn't mean strong wine. It doesn't mean high alcohol content. New wine, when it's first made, is not really very clear. Even in the scripture, it talks about wine has to settle. When wine is first made, it tastes like grape juice, all right? But it, it's... They didn't have strainers and things like that. And they'd, they'd mash it and then it would run down this little gully and get into a pot. When it's first made, wine, it's not very clear. It's really cloudy and it's gritty. Yeah. But old wine, this is wine where the dregs have settled to the bottom. Then it's clear and it's easy to drink. Now, these are some things to think about, but I do want you to notice the way people interpret this passage that new wine is the new move of God or the old wine is the old move of God and you can't mix them together. Well, then why is the old good? So maybe people are missing something here. So now you understand a couple of the question marks that I have in my Bible. All right, let's open up our hearts and worship again.
Welcome back. I want you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35. And every day, basically, you're seeing us. That was Brother John Evanzini calling. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to learn to turn all the machines off in the morning. I thought I had them all off, but I'm sorry. So I'll get Brother John on the phone in just a few minutes. Brother John is persistent. Welcome to live television. Numbers chapter 35, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of the possessions as cities for them to dwell in. Now notice, God gave the people of Israel no inheritance for the Levite tribe. That's one tribe they didn't get any. God said, I will be their portion. I will be their inheritance. But he told the people of Israel, now I want you to learn to take care of the men of God who are going to be taking care of you, the men and women of God, the, the whole tribe of Levi. Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. The Levites need a place to live. So, okay, they're, they're going to need some cities. And they only ministered for a period of about 20 years from the age of 30 to the age of 50. So they're going to need a place to live from the age of zero to 30 and a place to live after the age of 50. They can't stay in the temple at that time. And you should give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for the livestock and for their beasts. Now, this is not business. This is called food. All right. So they, the Levites needed a place to live, and they needed to have a place for their food. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. Now notice, he said, I don't want you to give them the junk land far away from the city. These are people that have to work. These are people that have to work to take care of you spiritually. He says, I don't want you to make them live so far away that they, they can't take care of the needs of the people. Their, their pasture land shall be right there around the walls of the city Forgive me, I know it looks like prime land because it's right close to the city. But he said, listen, they need to be able to function in their ministry and not be going back and forth to get food. He said, so the cities will be theirs to dwell in and their pasture land shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. So the land closest to the wall of the city. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side 2,000 cubits, and on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. Okay, the Levites, they can function in their ministry because their source of food is right close by. The cities that you should give the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge. Now, these cities of refuge are very important, as we'll see here in a moment. These are, are places of safety. This is where a person who had killed somebody by accident goes to live. I want you to notice, God said, living among the Levites will be a safe place. Now, there's a principle there. Living among the Levites was to be a safe place. Living among spiritual leadership was to be a safe place. Now, I know in the world today, we see all the abuse, the sodomy, the pedophilia taking place by preachers and priests. And, and you know, all this kind of stuff really hurts because the one place that people should feel safe is with God's leaders. This was the way it is always intended to be. In the cities that you give the Levites, verse six, shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits, and, they, and shall give its cities to the Levites. In other words, spiritual leaders need a place to live. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. Now, God understands. Yes, there is, there is the death penalty in God's law, but God understands accidents happen. There are things that happen without intent. 
And you cannot hold people to the same accountability when they have no intent. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, and the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you should give shall be your six cities of refuge. You should give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person without intent may flee there. Now, you know, people always want to act like the, the law of Moses was only for the Jews. The law of Moses was not only for the Jews. God said the aliens were to be treated the same way. Gentiles who lived among Israel was treated the same way. Throughout the, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, how many times does it talk about the alien must be treated fairly because you too once were aliens? So the same law applied to everybody, the sojourner and the stranger, verse 16. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck down with a stone tool that would cause death and he died, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. So the family member who was assigned to bring vengeance for the family, they had to be the one to actually cast the first stone. They had to be the one to, to do the death penalty. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death when he meets him and he shall be put to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died or in enmity struck him with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He's a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly, they were playing a game and pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything at him without lying in wait. Guys are just throwing stuff back and forth at each other, playing a game. Or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died. Though he is not his enemy and he did not seek his harm. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rule the manslayer, rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge in which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest. So he doesn't have to stay there forever, just until the death of the high priest, who is anointed with holy oil. And if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he's fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood but he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. In other words, his whole life hasn't been ruined by one accident. He does get his land back, his inheritance back. He does get his assets back. He can return to normal life at some point. These things shall be for a statute and a rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now, the principle of one witness goes from Genesis to Revelation. Paul said, do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. It's easy for one person to have a bad attitude. It's easy for one person to see things differently. See, everything you see in life is conditioned by your preconceptions or by your viewpoint, whether it's a physical vantage point or your intellectual vantage point. People see things differently. And because they see things differently, they remember things differently. It's not that the one witness is always lying. It's just from their physical vantage point or from their intellectual vantage point or attitudinal vantage point, they see things differently. For instance, have you ever watched an action movie on TV where these guys are fighting and they look like they're just killing each other. If you could see from a different angle, you would see that they never even make contact. Ah, but the way the camera angle works, it looks like they've made contact. I'm sorry, my phone is blowing up this morning. Not quite sure. Let me just take a break here. And
And let's just try to turn everything off. I hope that works. <laughs> I thought I had everything else turned up. Am I nice and red and embarrassed now? All right. We cannot put people to death. We cannot destroy somebody's life because of one person's viewpoint, one person's vantage point. That just cannot be done. So he said, if anyone kills a person, verse 30, and the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, and he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. Now notice, money can never be used to buy justice. Now that's a truth you need to get a hold of. So many times in my life, I've seen pedophiles. I've seen men that have sodomized little boys. And he has money. So he goes to the family and says, all right, if you will not report this to the police so that I go to jail, I will give you this much money. In the Philippines, we call it blood money. Now, brothers and sisters, I I'm sorry. That is not the right thing to do. If that guy did that to your child, he's going to do it to somebody else's child. If that guy raped your daughter, he's going to do it to somebody else's girl. So at some point, we have to realize money should never be allowed to buy justice. And that's the principle he's teaching. Verse 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that has been shed, except by the, one, the blood of the one who shed it. Now, say, Pastor, are you pro-death penalty? Yes, I am. Because there is a spiritual law here. When a man murders another man, the physical land of our nation is polluted. And the only thing that removes that spiritual pollution that destroys the physical land is the death penalty. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the, because I live in the midst. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. God said, listen, you got to understand something. I live among you. Now, now that's a principle that as Christians, we need to get a hold of just as much as the people of Israel needed to get a hold of it. God lives among us. There are reasons that we live the way we live, because God lives among us. Chapter 36, our last chapter in the book of Numbers. The heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Becher, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Joseph, came near and spoke to Moses and before the chiefs and the heads of the father's houses of the people of Israel. They said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zolophad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. <laughs> they say, Pastor, no, 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 just relax. There's a principle here. Sometimes decisions need more work. Now, that's the principle. A decision was made. God had said, Moses, this is what you're to say to the people. But sometimes decisions need more questions to be asked in order to implement them. In other words, decisions need a little bit more work. Let me say that again. Decisions need a little bit more work. Even when God has said, this is what's to be done, sometimes we have to go, okay, now implementing guidelines. Now say the principle with me. Sometimes decisions need a little more work. And when the Jubilee comes, of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry. Say, hey, we're going to lose something. God said, this is eternally the inheritance of our tribe. But now God has also said, wait a minute, these daughters can have their inheritance, but if they marry into another tribe, it's not going to stay in the tribe. So what do we do? It seems like God is contradicting himself. Verse five, and Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord saying, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. 
This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zalaphad. He said, let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be the wife of one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zolophed did as the Lord commanded Moses. Ramallah, Tikra, Ogla, Michach, and Noah, the daughters of Zolophed, were married to the sons of their brothers' fathers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh and the son of Joseph. And their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moses by the Jordan at Jericho. And again, my apologies for all of the phone calls coming in. Brother John always knows I talk to him at this time, just about every day or a little earlier than this. He's probably thinking, why hasn't Dave called? Because I always do my long distance what's up and all those phone calls on my drive on the way in every day to the office. So please forgive me. I'll try to remember to turn off all of my gadgets, though there seem to be too many of them laying around me right now. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Sometimes, Lord, we know what you've said, but it doesn't match everything. Lord, some of my brothers and sisters right now are facing those same decisions. As they come back to you, grant them wisdom. Show them how things can be done so that there is no contradiction, because we know that you never contradict yourself. Show them how to implement things in ways that there are no contradictions to your word and no contradictions to life. And Father, I thank you that whatever we do today, wherever we go, we dwell within you and you dwell among us. And you are our shield and our rear guard. You are our protector. Father, I lift to you the old folks today, all of our seniors. Let there be no fear within their life in Jesus' name. No fear. No fear, Lord, because you promised to satisfy them with a long life. <laughs> and you promised, Lord, that the coronavirus shall not come near their home. Father, keep your hand upon the lives of our people today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock.